welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. Comrades, as the fall approaches, with all of us wrapped in our coats, little hands outstretched asking for treats, and dreams of cozying up inside with a warm beverage, I'm reminded of another fall. The fall of the Soviet Union. (laughs) I hereby propose a motion to discuss Armando Iannucci's 2017 black comedy, The Death of Stalin, with the hopefully unanimous support of our three returning guests and members of the Pop and Lock Polyburo. Resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative at the Atlantic Council, Emma Ashford. Cato Institute adjunct scholar and host of the podcast Power Problems, John Glazer. Good to be here. And Cato Institute Director of Defense Policy Studies, Eric Gomez. Hello, comrades. All right, before we jump into the nonsense of this movie, I think it's really important that we have someone set like the historical context for us so that we can get a little bit better of an idea of what is actually going on in the world. In March of 1953, it's post-World War II and uh, USSR, what, what is going on? What is Stalin doing? Um, kind of set, set the scene for us so we can understand what nonsense unfolds later. Yeah, so I, I like to, to think of this movie as it's, it's a pivot point. It, Stalin's death is a, basically an inflection point for the Soviet Union between the sort of early USSR and the, the, the type of USSR that we are more familiar with when we talk about the Cold War. So um, you're right, this is post-World War II, um, but this is the generation, all these leaders, they're the generation that plotted and overthrew the Tsar, that fought the revolution, that fought the Russian Civil War, um, you know, took power, set up the Soviet Union, um, and then, you know, they uh, got swindled by the Germans, turned, joined the Allies during World War II, fought this just devastating war, 27 million dead. Um, and now by 1953, they have fully consolidated power. Um, so so this is the period in which Stalin dies, is the period in which the Cold War is starting. The Soviet Union is figuring out um where it's going to go from here. And Stalin's death is a big part of that decision. So who are the characters in this and who are they representing? Like who is, who are the members of the Politburo? Let's dissect whether or not their characters were accurate depictions of the real people, or if they were a little bit more exaggerated or uh, intense perhaps uh, than the real people. So why don't we start off with uh, Chief Beria? So Beria was the head of the NKPD, although it changed names uh, before the events of this movie, but it's sort of like the popularly known as the NKVD, um, and it's the Internal Security Services. So the forces that do uh, secret policing, espionage against other Soviet people, um, so the inward, the inward-looking part of the security service. And by all accounts, yeah, Beria was a pretty bad guy. Um, the things in the movie about him, you know, sexually assaulting uh, young girls was true. Um, and I think they did a great job of portraying him as a very devious plotter uh, who had a lot of enemies within the system and wanted to assert his control via the internal security services. So they did a good job uh, based off what I've read about him as a real-life figure. 
Yeah, Lavrentiberia was, a, as Erica says, a terrible, horrible human being, one of the worst human beings that's ever lived, probably. Um, but also a very classic head of like a secret police organization. He he kept files on everyone. And it comes up in the movie, right? He says, I know what you all did, I know all your secrets. And that that is Beria. He he, you know, he did. He kept all the secrets. He didn't even tell Stalin everything. You know, sometimes he hid people away to keep them for later, um, because that was the kind of plotter he was. Um, and and nobody trusted him for obvious reasons. In, in a political system like this, control of information and control of guns is very, very important uh, when the leader dies and, and it's time for internal power struggle. And Beria had a lot of both. And I think in the movie, the moment where he's where Emma said, where he's talking about, I have files on all of you, I have information on all of the bad stuff that you guys have done. I think that's the moment in the movie where they decide, you know, Khrushchev and, and Molotov kind of decide, all right, you know, we need to we need to get rid of this guy. Um, because he could threaten all of us. By no means am I any expert on uh, post-war Soviet governance or anything like that, or the folks that were in <laughs> charge. But one of the things I appreciate about the movie is uh, the flexibility that the actors have in not trying to be exact and depict. You know, the the approach that um, Buscemi has towards Khrushchev is very different than the approach that Daniel Day-Lewis had in portraying Lincoln, you know? Right. He's not going for an exact... Uh, depiction. He's allowing his own inner comedic sense to be able to flow out of the character quite nicely and and less uh, committed to the history, you know. Speaking of people who are less committed to the history, like, for instance, the character that I read about that everyone is kind of uh, mentions as probably the least accurate depiction of what their role was in the Central Committee was Jeffrey Tambor's character, Malenkov, who is definitely portrayed as like a, a pushover. He's he's trying to assert himself as the general secretary and step up and be the person that everyone looks to. And he he really does. He, he takes moves to assert himself, but immediately turns and acquiesces everything to the people who are actually apparently doing things behind the scenes, you know, barrier and Khrushchev and stuff. Is that accurate? And and if not, or even if it was, what is the, the point, do you think, in portraying Malenkov in that way? Malenkov is definitely one of the lesser known characters from this, this period. I mean, he climbed the ranks like the rest of them, right? All of these characters are vicious people, you know, very talented um, political climbers. They have built themselves this empire. Um, so Malenkov fits into that mold. Um, but, but I think what, what we saw in history was that he basically sort of kind of expected to succeed Stalin the way the way Stalin did Lenin, right? You know, in this formal process. Um, and then what he Find, what Malenkov later finds himself subject to basically is, um, you know, people just work around him, right? So he technically legally succeeds Stalin, and they just build up other positions to be more powerful. And so Malenkov finds himself shuffled off to the side after after this period in history. Um, he even mounts, I think, had an unsuccessful half-hearted coup later on, and it's so half-hearted they don't even execute him. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm sure that the way Jeffrey Tambor is doing Malenkov here is is an exaggeration. I'm sure he wasn't nearly that much of a buffoon in, in real life. Um, but there's a certain element of truth to it, right, that he does eventually just find himself overcome um, by the forces of people that are just better at this than he is. Um, and, you know, I kind of feel like Khrushchev is that way too. You know, Buscemi, 
um, as John says, he's, he's obviously not playing Khrushchev like a, a photorealistic drama trying to, to portray Khrushchev. That would be ridiculous um, in this case. But there's elements of truth there. There's a lot of truth there. Khrushchev was a, a very methodical kind of schemer. Um, he had built his reputation as a really good manager, a really good organizer. That's that's sort of where he came from. And you can see that coming out in the film. And you can, you know, you can see just all these little details of, you know, he he knows who everybody is. He remembers the jokes. He has his wife write down what he says, so he knows to do it again tomorrow if it was a good idea. Um, and so I think they... He shows up in his pajamas, for one. Right, yeah. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of just elements of truth there about these characters, which I really appreciated. I was just giggling basically the entire film just because I thought it was like ridiculous. But um, the the time when Khrushchev was, came in his pajamas and they're all like making fun of him and he was like well I had to get here as fast as possible and then they're all just staring at Stalin on the floor not doing anything so like I went down this rabbit hole a little bit that um because like when Stalin is suffering from a, I, I guess it was a it, in the movie it's a I believe it's a stroke or a hemorrhage of some sort I think sort. they said a bit of hemorrhage um, but that is a stroke I think isn't yeah it? Yeah, not a medical doctor. <laughs> um, and um, and then they're like arguing about bringing in a doctor and like whether or not they should bring in a doctor. And then they they were like, well, there aren't any doctors and there, and that aren't any good doctors left because they're all dead or in are in the gulag. And I was I was like I was like that is such a dark joke because like that was wasn't this the time because I was like reading up on this thing called the doctor's plot where Stalin uh had a group of doctors that. I guess either were plotting against him or he believed were plotting to like kill him. And then he like let them all go into the either killed them or into the gulag. And then he had a new group of doctors prior to dying that like he didn't like weren't as familiar with him to begin with. But I think they did. They really played up that element in the in the movie. And I think in a fun way, because like, who are you? Where did you come from? Like, you're not a doctor, Um, which like was poking fun at like a obviously a, a messed up situation but I thought it was a good way of like portraying like how ridiculous like those decisions were being made at the time um which like I think they show throughout the film quite a few times about this there's like this sentiment that like every decision has to be made by the committee which like they start making fun of is like well let's let's make it a decision by with the committee the whole committee has to make it because no one wanted to be like the person to blame if something went wrong because then they know they die um and I think that was like an interesting way to like show this the dynamics of this time period and what the they were going to transition after Stalin but i think at the same time it's kind of like it it has that dark comedy aspect you're like is should this really be funny um or is this kind of just like sad you know what i mean like i feel like the movie really like the whole movie kind of like treads that that line of is this comedy and should i be laughing or is it like man, this is like, these people are super incompetent. And this is like kind of like upsetting. <laughs> Absolutely. That's another thing I appreciate about the film is is they they keep the ugly details in there while not breaking from the comedic posture ever. Uh, and so it adds to, it, it creates some hilarious moments. But this whole reference to, uh, you know, we've killed all the good doctors, that's playing up the element that happens in authoritarian command and control systems where, you know, you have to get rid of the intelligentsia because they're smart enough to take the rug out from under the uh, established um, rulers. 
Um, you know, it's like in the Cultural Revolution in China. They, you know, put the doctors with the farmers, etc. Um, and that cr- kind of creates the atmosphere for what kind of country these people are living in and how uh, how uh, shifted everything is in favor of and in service of the top. You know, the the dictator. And it's it's interesting specifically because I was listening to an interview with Yanucci and he specifically uh, was talking about the feedback and like he, he had instructed the cast and crew on the film like we have to be very respectful of the people that actually were you know, victims of this terrible violence during this era because there are you know it's still obviously a very tender subject for a lot of people who are affected by it and so threading that needle was was very challenging for them in production but i think it does manifest uh or at least it was attempted to be shown because all of the comedy is generally a result of the buffoonish croniest sort of uh, bumbling aspects of the people at the top. That's where the laughs are. Um, th- all of the violence that's enacted on the people, you know, the the sort of shooting when people are trying to get into Moscow, which isn't is in and of itself kind of a reference to a, a stampede that happens at Stalin's funeral, but isn't like one hundred percent accurate in the way it's portrayed. But but those moments are not played for jokes. It's uh, it's a sort of uh, Manipian satire in that way, in that there is moments of levity and mockery, and there are moments of very, very serious satirization at the same time. Uh, and I liked that, but I don't know if it like. And for instance, we were all talking before. I think we all really, really enjoyed this movie. It's very funny. I I had a great time laughing at these you know, just bumbling fools as they're portrayed. But they really were, like Emma said, very calculating, practiced, extremely methodical people. But they were enforcing this, these measures in what were seemingly banal ways as well. Um, like, sure, uh, Beria was, you know, as head of the secret police, giving a lot of orders and being like, this person needs to be killed. This person needs to be taken away. But a lot of this was done by memo or, you know, telling people and other people, you know, were getting their hands dirty, which is really interesting. And I read one criticism of the film that I thought was very interesting that I would I would really be interested in what people sort of thought of it and whether they think it's correct. But uh, Samuel Goff for the Calvert Journal wrote that the film is fundamentally ill equipped to locate the comedy inherent to Stalinism. Uh, They seem determined to turning Beria into a throbbing nucleus of evil, an avatar of the obscenities of the Stalin estate that they miss the point of and the comedy in the system of abuse and privilege. Um, it, It loses itself in the reveries of dictatorship and forgets to say anything about the faceless uh, mechanisms of power, these pencil pushers that could enact mass death, that the memo is a more potent symbol of the system than the rifle. There's not enough banality in it. We see horror and satire, but never in conjunction. What do you make of that take? Do you think that's accurate? And if so, why or why not? 
I, I don't think that's accurate at all. In, in fact, if anything, I think this movie really does reinforce for me the notion of the banality of evil, you know, that Hannah Arendt suggested. The, the idea that, that people within these systems are cogs and they are doing terrible, terrible things, but it is just, it's very banal. It's just like, here's tonight's list, go and go arrest the people, go shoot them. Um, you know, the casual way throughout the film that we just repeatedly see people, you know, um, draw a gun, shoot someone, walk off. You know, it's just been all that's what you do. It's a Tuesday. Um, and so I, I actually think the film does that really well. Um, and, and the other thing that I, I think sort of that it, it does really well is highlighting how everybody in this movie is a cog in the system. Right. So this is not that these are people on top who are exempt from the from the fear, from the horror of it all. Um, you know, we, we see this, there's this scene pretty early on in the movie where they're all joking around and trying to impress Stalin and, you know, everybody gets really quiet um, because somebody says, hey, whatever happened to Polnikov? Um, and, you know, the answer is Polnikov used to be really important and then he offended Stalin and now he's totally dead and nobody talks about him, you know, and the same with Trotsky and the same with lots of others. Um, you know, Molotov himself ends up on a list right before Stalin dies. And if Stalin didn't die, he'd probably be dead. Um, so I, I feel like the, you know, it really captures at the same time, the banality of this of this system where this is just how things are and the fact that everybody is incorporated in it, even the people who ostensibly have the power. I was going to say, it sort of sounds like this reviewer has his own knowledge of the history of the period and is upset that, you know, his particular preference for a comedic satire wasn't uh, what was on the screen. But it's exactly what we've been talking about. You know, I think this is why satire is almost as important as history itself. If you really, really dig into the history, sometimes what happens to these personalities is their humanity kind of dissolves into the historical narrative. And what satires remind us is that these are just idiot humans. You know, they're all, there's six of them sitting around a table, you know, watching social cues to know whether their hands should go up, you know, arguing over petty mundanities um, and uh, falling into uh, chaos and uh, one kind of decision or another. And the satire really does depict that quite well. There's, these are normal, ordinary people who are doing terrible things. And their ordinariness is hilarious in the context of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with John. Like the, It is equal parts sort of like petty, familiar, but then also remembering the power that these people have in such a political system. And I, li I really like how the movie shows both of those at the same time. Uh, so I, yeah, it's a, it's a great piece of satire. I think another good example of like, like what Emma was saying, and we were all just piggybacking off of them, like being normal people and like kind of they're in the system too, is like, um, the Paulina character. She, I think she is the wife of, I'm blanking on which one of them. Molotov. Molotov. Yeah. So she was imprisoned by Stalin. Um, and then when Stalin, you know, was laying on the ground half dead, they like release her. And it, it and it struck me because there's like this guy's like in Stalin's like inner circle. And I put that in air quotes because like Stalin can decide whoever he wants to kill at any time. But um in his like inner circle and even him was even he was affected by it because his like wife was uh imprisoned and then it was also just kind of like Oh, now that Stalin's gone, like we're just gonna let out whoever we want to let out. That like, oh, 
like he's gone. He's not going to enforce this. Like, okay, you're, you're my friend. You can come out or like, <laughs> that seems like kind of, um, arbitrary. Um, I don't know if that's actually what happened. Um, but I do know Paulina was released, but I like looked up something. It was like a little suspect whether or not it was actually because Stalin died that she was released. Um, apparently she was also released on her husband's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was funny. The movie kind of uses it as this plot device as like barrier. You know, in fact, the movie I think says that she was meant to have been executed. And so her husband actually thinks she's dead right. when she's released. Um, mm-hmm. That's not entirely historically accurate, but I think the movie does a good job of using it as this little subplot that like, you know, Varia knew she might be useful at some point. So he just kept her hidden in a cellar and told Stalin she was dead. Um, and then Stalin's right. dying and he can just bring her out to bolster his case with, with Molotov. Um, and it's funny because it comes back to bite him a little later in the film because Stalin's daughter says, hey, you know, where's my boyfriend? You killed him too. Where is he? And it turns out, no, he's actually dead because Beria didn't think to save him. Um, and so he can't mm-hmm. make the, the boyfriend reappear the way he made um, Paulina reappear. Welcome to the Game of Thrones real life version that is, you know, <laughs> powerful people in personalist uh, dictatorships, right? Like Stalin, before the events of this movie, purged the Red Army at one point after, you know, they had started combat with the with the Nazis. You know, th- these are not decisions made, you know, getting high up doesn't save you. Um, when the whims of one person have so much sway. And I, you know, I, I study East Asia a lot and you see the same thing in communist China under Mao um, or North Korea. Kim Jong-un had, you know, famously assassinated his brother um, and his uncle, Jiang Song-tek, because the uncle was seen as too close and too friendly with the Chinese. And in a system like North Korea's where it's both very communist and also hereditary, essentially, like hereditary monarchy type system. Uh, you, offing uncles is <laughs> uh, for, for getting too friendly with the Chinese, despite years and years, despite them being family, despite years and years of service to previous leaders, it doesn't matter. And it can change uh, for reasons that appear arbitrary or or just not make sense to most people because it's whatever one person thinks in their head. This is a little off topic, but since we mentioned Molotov, he's played by the great Michael Palin, mm. which is mm-hmm. uh, just excellent. He's probably one of the best characters. And I think this one defining thing that sticks in my head about the, his portrayal of Molotov is uh, they've beaten Beria and they're, they've, they've uh, handcuffed him to the urinal in the bathroom and uh, uh, they're about to kill him. And Michael Palin's Molotov... Uh, announces that he's got to evacuate. He might, while they're in the bathroom, he might as well take a seat because it must be all the excitement. And I just love, he's so clueless, not only about what's going on, but about his own body. He's just like, oh, it must be the excitement. I've got to take a seat on the can. I don't know. Just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, that was there's also a real element, I think, throughout the film of, you know, just the violence is just so expected and normal, you know, and again, to bring this back to just the historical context, you know, in 1953, most of these people have been going through like violent upheaval for much of their adult lives. I mean, you know, we are talking about revolutions that go back to 1906, 
weeks, you know, with brief periods of calm. You know, the Second Revolution, 1917, followed by a five-year civil war that was just incredibly brutal. Um, you know, then we start to get, you know, the purges and the consolidation and the lists. And then it's World War II and there's 27 or 28 million Russians dead, um, you know, and we're only like about six, seven years past that at this point. So, you know, for, for these people, this this just constant violence and death around them is, is a way of life. And I mean, I think the film, again, because it's a satire, you can watch it without that really getting to you in the same way. Um, but like, it, I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have had that life. That must be just horrifying. It's all they know. They're shaped by it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And a good way they portrayed that is um, using the uh, piano player. So like, I think, so the piano player, they're, they're like, <laughs> And again, a ridiculous scene. She, this piano player does like the entire, um, it's like a entire concert. I think it's like a piano concerto or, and they go through the whole thing. The audience class stands up and then Stalin calls the radio that um, was like hosting this concert was like, oh, can I have a recording of the concert? And, so, and they didn't record it. And since it was already over, so the guy like ran out and was like, oh, like everyone sit down. Like we have to do it again. Uh, and then like they start bringing in people off the street and then they're like, we got to bring in more people so that it fills the space so that like it sounds the same, blah, 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 blah. And um, like this ridiculous scene, but then it cuts to the piano player. And the piano player is like, well, I, I'm not going to play it again. And he was like, well, then we need to find another piano player. And then she explained that she didn't want to play it again because like Stalin, I believe Stalin had like killed her brother or a family member of some sort. So there was like showing the like connection even to like people not necessarily in the political sphere. And she's like, well, I'm not doing it again for him. And then, and then she, just, I mean, she gets paid off. And then um, she, I think that was like an interesting way to show that like Stalin affects like Stalin's actions affected like everyone from like his inner circle down to like people, just random people on the street or a piano player. Um, and then she, it was, it was obvious that she knew she was going to get some type of deal if she did play, play again. So it was like almost like that, that concept uh, of violence, like you were saying, Emma, is just like normalized in the society almost at this point that that's like what they expect. Like, oh, Stalin wants this. Okay. Like if I don't do it, you're going to die. But if I do, I'll do it for like 20, I'll do it for 20 K or whatever. Um, so it just becomes like kind of this like toxic cycle of, um, of violence. As the person who has failed to hit record, uh, many, many times, I can tell you. Now, I don't want to compare anybody that I work with to Stalin as, like, obviously threatening me in any way. But that's, you know, when you're running around, you're like, when he comes into the room and says, was it recorded? I've I've been there. I've been there. And it's like, please. And then you have to, you have to stop everybody and be like, nope, everybody sit down. Sit down and listen to me. We're going to record this again. Um, but what you were mentioning, Natalie, specifically about the, uh, the way that she is paid off by the uh, uh, radio uh, head uh, with Radio Moscow at that time, it reminds me of, I mean, there is specifically a name for this informal, heavily prevalent system of favors exchanged between people at all levels of, of Soviet society. And it's called blot, which basically is just the assumption that everybody 
at every level of society is in need of something that because of, you know, a lack of power or goods or ability or whatever that, that is. And there is a sort of intrinsic understanding that outside of the legal mechanisms and the sort of normal ways that we go about and, and make exchanges in a free market sense, rather, that there is this below the radar favor trading that goes between all people like you have a cousin that gets sent to prison i have a brother who is a police officer so you come to me and ask if you can put in a word with uh, or with someone to see if you can get him a lighter sentence and i would say well what do you what can you do for me and that instead of it, while it is corrupt it is just assumed at all levels of society that that is what people had to do to get by. And like you said, it just it's violence all the way down to an aspect or people having to use whatever power they had in order to get by. You know, it's actually just, I mean, to, to sort of shift away from the film for just a second, um, that that corruption part of it is, I mean, is something we commonly see in communist systems. Um, and in the Soviet Union in particular, um, the reason that system developed was basically because the command economy that was put in place. So, so again, so the 50s and the 40s, this is the period of most centralized economic control um, in the Soviet Union. So this is the period when everything is collectivized, everything, farms, factories, um, and command systems don't work very well um, because they they sort of, you know, you end up with a factory that's missing a part, but you have to put in a requisition order for it, and that takes two years, and so the whole factory comes to a halt, and, you know, so that's the kind of thing that happens in a, in a command economy, um, and the reason this this informal black market system builds up in a, in a lot of communist countries is because not just you have to do this to survive, but because you have to do this to fulfill your job, right? So the factory manager, he can put in the requisition and he can watch his factory sit idle for two years and perhaps get executed for not meeting his quotas. Or, as you say, he can call his cousin who knows a guy who makes widgets um, and he just sources one on the black market. And so you, you get this whole secondary economy that builds up um, and, you know, you can call it corruption you can call it a black market, but it is really just a like a little free market that operates underneath the collectivized system. Um, and it's the only thing that stops the whole system from grinding to a halt. And most of the reforms that we, we see in communist countries, I mean, everywhere, everything from like Gorbachev's um, perestroika in the in the 80s, you know, what the Chinese did under Deng Xiaoping in the in the, the 70s and 80s, um, you know, Vietnam after the war. That's all attempts by communist systems to leverage these like little black markets into something that can actually bolster the full economy. So they basically le legitimate them. And I'm, I'm sure Eric probably knows better than me. North Korea has been experimenting with this over the last decade or so. The attempt to capture the benefits of the free market and sort of plug them into the holes in this collectivized communist economy um, probably doesn't work as well as actual free market economies but but you know it's, it's interesting that it ends up being so important you just got to be careful because if you <laughs> because what is sort of tolerated uh, one year can become the new corruption later uh, I think we're seeing that in Xi Jinping's China where you know he a, a famous thing that she's been doing is cracking down on corrupt behavior and putting that in air quotes um, 
but it's it primarily going after potential po- internal political rivals, um, not necessarily applying it equally to everyone because yeah, there are some people in his patronage network that are probably doing the same things, but aren't getting caught or persecuted as hard um, for it. Uh, so yeah, that that's the other, that's like the dark side of, of you know, the, those sort of networks is that they're fine as long as the center tolerates it. Um, but if you run afoul of them, then it becomes easy to kind of say, well, you were doing this illegal thing um, because I don't like you anymore for whatever reason. Getting back to like the film, what I I saw Emma had written something down about um, that there was a plan uh, for when Stalin dies, and I was like I was genuinely wondering that throughout the film. I was like, I wonder if they like just thought they were like trying to be optimistic and be like, oh, he's gonna live so long that we don't need to worry about it or whatever. Um, but what was what was the plan for like a tr- transition of power? Like what had they thought of before he actually killed over? Well, so you know how during the movie, um, every so often there's these little flashcards that come up and it says, you know, like clause yeah. three, article two, the body will lie in the hall of columns for three days. Um, well, so so that is, um, you know, that that was the plan, right? The plan was that, um, you know, the, the actual structure. So the Soviets always had a constitution. Right. Um, And they had these legal mechanisms. And in fact, it's a highly formal um, institutional system. Um, You know, so Stalin would be succeeded by Malenkov and he would take over his position as, you know, chairman of the party and of the general secretariat. And he would run the Politburo. um, And that's the plan. Um, But what happens in, in the USSR and on a lot of these systems is that that position stuff ends up being very much secondary to the real politics of the situation. And so, you know, so what the film basically is, is this power struggle. Um, You know, Malenkov thinks he's succeeding Stalin um, and he's so busy burnishing his legacy that he doesn't bother to notice that the others, but particularly Khrushchev and and Beria, are basically locked in this struggle to see who's going to come out on top because they know that whichever one of them triumphs in this small period, they're going to be the real leader, even if they don't have the title. Um, and that is, in fact, what the, what plays out after the film is Malenkov is the leader in the in name, um, but he never really actually runs the country. And it, it ends up, you know, Khrushchev ends up consolidating power after this. Um, and by, um, you know, by about five years after this, Malenkov has basically just been edged out entirely. I don't know. I, I knew it was like I knew that Malenkov had been edged out, but I, I didn't realize that this like power struggle was a- as real as it was in the uh, like as it was uh, portrayed in the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, power struggles in the I mean, in the early Soviet Union, these power struggles were absolutely vicious. Um, I mean, Trotsky, much earlier than this arrival to Lenin, ends up exiled to Mexico and ends up with an ice axe embedded in his skull. Um, you know, as a result of a power struggle. So these Yikes. these were terrible, <laughs> terrible power struggles. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that Death of Stalin, by this point, were much more into sort of plotting behind the scenes and who can win over the army, um, it's, it's almost an improvement. Yeah, and then there's that little hint towards the end with that slight pan up to Brezhnev when they're all in the balcony. Uh, and there's just <laughs> that little subtitle that talks about him sort of edging him out of the party and, and, and gaining power. I thought that was that was a really interesting way, a nice little tag on the end of the movie that could have just ended with Khrushchev, um, but sort of goes on to show that this is, this is really not the end of any of these problems that they've uh, introduced with this movie here. I had a slight tinge that that 
that it sort of that ending sort of sets us up for a sequel, which I think would probably destroy <laughs> the value of the movie as most sequels do. But it did definitely give that sense, didn't it? The Soviet cinematic universe. I guess it would be like the the Ianucci <laughs> Soviet cinematic universe because there's probably oh already a Soviet cinematic universe. They made lots of movies. <laughs> yeah, the Soviet cinematic universe of British yeah. humor. Something else that was kind of struck me throughout the film was that like. The and La- I think Landry had written something down about this. Like all of the actors are like seem British. Well, uh, <laughs> in, in well, my uh, opinion. most of like, them are British, but are. there's several Americans too in there as well. Yeah, like obviously like Buscemi and all. And they didn't try and like hide that. Yeah, and I had heard. I, I think Ianucci did this on purpose because he was just like people doing Russian accents is like too distracting and not believable <laughs> like it's just it just becomes a bad Fair. caricatured russian accent and apparently the the few audiences in russia that saw it before it was it was banned uh, shortly after it was released because it did gain approval uh, and had a license to to premiere there but apparently some audiences came to him and were like thank you for not having them do russian accents because they always sound so bad um so i, I yeah it would have sounded so so lame. i i think it's maybe to reflect yeah. <laughs> like the diversity of the Soviet Union, like like uh, uh, Beria himself is from uh, Georgia. Khrushchev is from Ukraine. I think isn't Stalin? I think from Georgia as well originally. Like it's a a very varied place. So I, I did think it was an interesting choice. At first, I thought it was like Chernobyl, the HBO Sky News miniseries, yeah. where everyone just has like they're not even trying at all. And I was kind of like, I feel like I'm you know losing something here, but. I kind of like, like, especially Steve Buscemi's character. He's just, they're not trying to put on anything at all with that accent. Um, and I think it it sort of adds something to maybe, it, maybe it makes everyone kind of look at uh, American or British politics in a in a sort of similar way, just as a, a sort of meta layer on top, um, subconsciously. I, I don't know, but I, I was curious what everyone had uh, sort of thought about that choice. Well, I also read what what you read that uh, Ianucci basically said, well, this also kind of represents, it works out cleanly because it represents the fact that uh, these people would have had different accents and so on. That's sort of a post hoc explanation. I think the real reason is because, I mean, if you know the rest of his work, what he's doing here, what what he's really good at is this British humor uh, and political satire, which if you check, there's so much in the humor uh, in, in their, in, there's so much humor in their accents and in their intonation and in their colloquialisms that if he would have really try to make them have Russian accents or make it more, make it less a British comedy because it's happening in Moscow, I think it would have ruined his, the very mission he was on to, to, in this film. I love thick Yorkshire accent, General Jukov too. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it, it, it does a great job with that. And, you know, I, I think for a movie like this, you either have to have it done entirely in the Russian language, which most audiences probably wouldn't get the the turns of phrases or the particular uh, intonations or, or that sort of subtle stuff. Or you do it like Ianucci did do it and have it just say, all right, we're not going to try and do the, the stupid accent. We're not going to try and do Russian. We'll just do it in English. So that way the most audiences can like get it. And pick up on prioritize the laughs. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, maybe it was post hoc, but it re- it really does work well. And you know, as, as some as, as the only Brit on this call, it, the accents are perfect. <laughs> um, you know, you said you said Zhukov has a Yorkshire accent. He doesn't. He has a Geordie accent, which means he has a working class Newcastle accent, which means he sounds like he came from nothing, right? He sounds like he's got this crappy, poor accent, working class, and it's the perfect fit for Zhukov because that is who Zhukov was. Came from nothing war hero commands the red army um you know he deserves every one of those medals that is pinned on him um but the accent is still there and so it really i mean maybe it is post hoc but it worked absolutely perfectly at least from you know if you're british and you get where the accents are coming from <laughs> sorry for getting the region wrong <laughs> shame how dare you Aaron? Oh, how man. dare you i was trying to flex close. on my accent knowledge and i totally failed <laughs> One of the quotations of this movie that really stuck out to me as the most telling and I think kind of to me seemed like it was trying to act kind of like a thesis to the entire movie um, is at the very end after Beria has been killed and uh, Khrushchev is talking to Svetlana, Stalin's daughter, and trying to you know convince her to go to Vienna and not to stay in Russia and try and take care of her brother uh, and all of this stuff. And, and he says to her, this is how people get killed when their stories don't fit. How does that play into what the film is trying to say? And, and how did that manifest in the Soviet Union? Well, leaving the history aside for just a second, I think what this film does have in common with the other political satires that Yanucci has done is that, yes, we're in the Soviet Union. Yes, it's extremely authoritarian and the stakes are much more dire than in, uh, in the loop or in Veep. But what's still true, what unites all these um, uh, features of political power is that there's a story that, you know, of what actually occurs and then there's the story that elites project out to the public. And that's true here in this film, and that's true in Veep, and that's true in, in all of uh, his work. And it's true in uh, political systems like ours, which are largely democratic, but are faltering on some of those key factors. And it's also true in you know authoritarian command and control economies. So I think you're right that that's probably a through line and a, a kind of thesis of the film. I was just going to say, actually, um, the central character of Yanucci's first series, which is called In the Thick of It, um, which is a British political satire. It's what Veep was based on, but it's in the British political system. Um, The main character is actually um, what's known colloquially as a spin doctor. So he's the person that basically takes what's happening and turns it into this story for the public. And so I I think John is is absolutely right that there is this real dichotomy between what actually happens and what the public sees. And, you know, throughout the film, we see all these little bits like people are genuinely mourning Stalin, you know, this terrible, horrible person because they think he's the father of the country. Um, You know, they can't figure out how to stop Vasily, Stalin's idiot son, from giving a speech at the funeral because he has to. They can't actually bar him. Um, You know, and even though Stalin's daughter has no political power, they're all trying to get to her because they know she's valuable for this, like portraying that they are Stalin's legacy part of it. And so, you know, you you do see those little hints that they are concerned with how the story looks to the outside as much as they are with clawing their way to power. Yeah, the the story and information is very important. And that quote reminded me of 1984, which isn't satire, but... Um, you know, the one of the key themes of 1984 is that 
you control the past via propaganda and information and whatever the truth is becomes what the party says it is. Um, And I think that that came to mind when I heard that quote. And like John, John said, you know, this isn't just true of authoritarian systems, but I think it's especially important in authoritarian systems. And, you know, as we deal with fake news and misinformation um, in a democratic modern society, I I think those types of things might become more important, right? Of, Of trying to ascertain what is truth from lies, what is, you know, the signal from the noise. Um, and I, I hope <laughs> the consequences won't be as dire uh, in, in the near future U.S. Um, as they were for people in Stalin's Russia. And I, I, I don't think they will be. But, you know, information and how narratives and how stories get, you know, stories about power get told are a very important part of governing and, and government systems probably even more so than what actually happens in some cases. So actually, I mean, it's it's funny because this film really does, if you if you talk about if you're gonna talk about 1984, I think it puts into context just how ridiculous a lot of the invocations of 1984 are today. Because this this period, this this film, this period in Soviet history, that was where the novel 1984 came from, right? George Orwell was this British socialist, um, and he was absolutely appalled at what Stalin was doing. Right. And so his books, um, his early books are about the sort of virtues of socialism and his later books about how it all goes wrong. Right. So um, animal farms, some animals are more equal than others. That was 100 percent about what Stalin was doing in the Soviet Union. Um, and, and then uh, 1984, which comes out, I think, about four or five years before Stalin died, um, but actually references, you know, the people that disappear from photos. Um, that is actually a thing that Stalin did in the Soviet Union. So so this is the period in history that 1984 is based on with all its just bleak horror. Um, and, and so for me, I guess it kind of confirms that, you know, yeah, this is something we really should worry about. But a lot of the invocations of 1984 are really overblown today because, you know, death of Stalin, this film, that's what 1984 is talking about, is that's how bad it can get. Right. And the photos in particular, that's the credits of the film is they're mm-hmm. they're scratching people's faces out, yeah. but they're also removing them sort of in post, which literally happened during the Soviet Union. And there's, you know, famous staged photos like when the raising the flag over the Reichstag after the Battle of Berlin and all of this stuff. So it, it's really interesting that they decided to just, you know, full, full throatedly, wholeheartedly just uh, portray that in the credits of the film uh, instead of uh, as a way of highlighting who the cast was. It was it was very interesting by by removing them at times. It sort of highlights who they were, which you know makes me kind of wonder about you know while it was effective at the time to remove people uh, uh, from photos. Is there a is there a long term a long arc Streisand effect that's going on <laughs> with some of these people being disappeared and they they are just elevated? Well, I was going to say the character, the pianist, um, whose name completely escapes me right now, um, but she was a real life character um she she or a real life person um she didn't so in the movie she sends stalin this note saying you're a murderer and i hope you die um and then he has a stroke and dies <laughs> um but in in real life um stalin was a huge fan of hers um and he and she sent him you know a note saying um i will pray for you and your sins um 
which in the context of this totalitarian system where you can be killed for whatever, that is, I mean, that is just, she, she could have been killed for that very easily and she knew it. Um, and, and after her death, you know, she, um, she was treated by a lot of Russians as, um, you know, this person who stood up to evil, um, particularly religious Russians, because that was sort of her thing was she was quite religious. Um, and so, uh, as you say, Landry, over the long arc of history, right, she had an impact. She inspired people to push back on this system. I was just going to say, um, out of curiosity, did anyone find anything about how, like, I, uh, this movie went to a Russian audience, as I, at least I think it did. Um, did anyone see um, any, like, reviews or, like, what was their reaction to this? Like, do you think... Like, I'm wondering, watching it as someone that was alive when the USSR was still a thing or when they were living in the USSR, like what their reaction would have been to it. Like, did they would they have thought it was funny? Like, well, how was it received? Because I can't imagine it was received all that well. I think I read that it, that it did open in Russia to some audiences and the government subsequently banned it. So... Uh, some things don't change. That tracks. It was banned <laughs> for extremist content. Um, that's the that's what they said. Um, but actually, what it, what it was banned for is because the Russian government under Vladimir Putin has had a campaign for about twenty years now to rehabilitate Stalin. Um, so you know, again, the long arc of history, right here. After Stalin dies, Khrushchev gets up at the Party Congress, and I think it was nineteen sixty four, and he says Stalin made mistakes. And we should acknowledge those mistakes. And this was a huge change. And so Stalin um, sort of becomes progressively viewed more negatively for his crimes throughout the, the Soviet period. But in the post-Soviet period, Putin has sort of gone back and tried to rehabilitate Stalin as, you know, he was this great war leader. He kept us safe. Um, you know, he made Russia great. Um, and so this film really pushes against that. And that's the reason that it was it was ultimately banned was because it gave this portrayal of Stalin as somebody who you shouldn't venerate. We're back to stories again and how, how important it is in political systems to have the right one. Yeah, similar, similar phenomenon happening in China with Mao and, you know, how in, and the Cultural Revolution after that's over and Deng Xiaoping takes power and, you know, the sort of terrible things that Mao did come to light um, and and get talked about more in the party. But then as you get further away and time passes and the people who experienced it firsthand uh, get old and pass away, uh, then, you know, now Xi Jinping is, is sort of doing certain things, uh, probably not everything, but certain things that kind of make himself more of that kind of cult of personality type figure that Mao had. Um, and, yeah, it's like what what's old is new again, <laughs> and and these narratives and stories really matter. Well, so here's a fun one for you, right? Um, now we're talking about all these authoritarian systems. How do you think people would react if Anucci made one about the American founding fathers, right? I mean, obviously they're not terrible people the way that a lot of these people are, but right, imagine an Anucci comedy in which you know Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings is satirized, right? And it's like you know, oh, he writes all these things, but he's off with Sally Hemings. I mean, Im imagine that it could actually be. I mean, I don't think people would react particularly well to it because it would push against, you know, the mythology of sort of perfect people. 
And I mean, we don't want to, you know, without getting overly political here, you know, there are these debates right now about whether students should be taught negative things about American history, um, you know, true negative things about American history. And so, you know, again, it, it makes me wonder how a film that did this kind of thing for American political figures would actually be greeted here. I, I don't think it would be all that favorable. Actually, Iannucci was asked, Iannucci, or was it the original? Because this was a comic mm. before it became a film. I might have been um, the comic author was asked if he would do this about Trump. Um, and his first response said that um, what it was that it was like too soon, like it was too recent memory in order to uh, satirize someone like Trump, but also that he didn't know, like he was already getting pushback that he didn't do Stalin well enough. So the uh, the idea of doing Trump was like even more, <laughs> more like daunting. But it was like this whole idea of like your proximity to when it happened. It's harder to satirize. And like the the reception from the audience is like harder to please if it's still like recent memory. Um, so he was asked about doing someone in the American political system. But I didn't think about I, I didn't see anything about asking about doing the founding fathers. That would be interesting, at least to me. <laughs> yeah, I I think he had said particularly that everyone was waiting for the last tweet in particular, the what what he called yeah. the, the my kingdom for a horse tweet, um, which to me just <laughs> makes me think like the January 6th episode mm. would be like, can you imagine the Ianucci version of what was going on behind the scenes while all of that was going on at the Capitol? Like, it could be, no. but it's that kind of thing where you can see the conversations going on at the White House would be a hilarious, you know, set of scenes in Iannucci's hands juxtaposed with the reality of what's going on at the Capitol, just like what was going on at the death of Stalin between the people being shot in the street and the bumbling fools that were going on in the Politburo. I think the point about satirizing very recent events is important and real. On the other hand, I think there's another disincentive when it comes to Trump or the Trump years. And that's because they were pretty surreal. Uh, like there's a, <laughs> Trump's real personhood. Yeah. If you just tick the dial like one or two points uh, left or right, he actually just is one of these hilarious yeah. buffoon yeah, characters. Yeah, like we lived in, through this satire. For sure. Right. And so it's kind of, it becomes a little tricky to satirize something that's so completely ridiculous. And that was actually, that's, that's a through line, I think, throughout the Trump years is that things would become so absurd uh, and sort of weirdly dangerous to have what is essentially a not mentally well person up at the top of the federal government and all his minions scrambling around to protect that story from really getting out too too loudly. I mean, um, uh, it becomes tricky, I think, to uh, satirize what appears to us as a satire in real life, you know? Although remember that Death of Stalin almost everything in it is true, up to and including the opening scene where they re-record the concerto for Stalin. So, I mean, I, I think maybe more recent history I know, would be I know, difficult, but... The, but um, yeah, but he did In the Loop, which was about the Iraq War, which is not so long after it was after, after it came out in 2009. You know, I think that there's a different... Like, if we, if we were able to have a peephole into Stalin's uh, room or whatever, uh, 
he probably wouldn't come across terribly buffoonish. I don't know. Like he's sort of an, an, an ordinary dude with an evil uh, slant. And Trump is a very unordinary dude with an evil slant that you can easily laugh at because <laughs> of how absurd his, his existence in the political system is, you know. And John just got us all on the enemies list for when <laughs> <laughs> Trump returns to the White House. I know. Emma said that this was banned as a result of extremist <laughs> content. I was trying to think of how much material I've produced that could be so described. You're, you're a counter-revolutionary <laughs> to the MAGA-ing. And <laughs> well, that might be another thing, too, right? Like, it's 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 kind of tricky to, to satirize Trump when he's still kind of around, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. Some, sometimes if he's in the headlines, sometimes. I have to double check. I have to double check that it's not from The Onion, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki for a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs> <laughs>